Hey Todd, before we go on, uh, Buffy seems to be serenading us. In the background. she was, yeah. I'll uh, I'll close the door. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack, and I'm Joseph Drowski. And this week we're talking about Vin from Mistborn, The Final Empire. And to help with the discussion, we're joined by returning all-star guest, Kirsta Christensen. Hello! Welcome, Welcome Kirsta. It's been so long. Did I miss anything? Were there any babies or weddings while I was gone? <laughs> I'm thinking back. I think my child was born last time. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually. Oh, okay. One baby. One baby. And it's been too one, long then. because he's like, wedding. Last time you were here, right? No. Nope. No. no. And one baby. <laughs> How long has it been? It's been That's too long. Like That's six months. Seven so months. Long. Yeah. I was busy. Never and again. Y'all were talking about boring stuff, so I didn't come. <laughs> and we've got a new podcast in the in the family. Yes. yes. Yeah, a new spinoff podcast. That's Producer right. Andrew has the Disney Animation <laughs> Minute Essentials. Mm-hmm. So listeners, go give that one a listen. But Kirsten, we're grad, uh, glad to have you back, uh, as I, I think all-star is the proper term for Woo-hoo! for your, uh, your appearances here. Uh, just a quick note, this discussion, uh, talking about Miss Born, was recommended by patron Kaylee. So thank you, Kaylee, for her- recommending this. Uh, it is a long book. That's one thing we all discovered. <laughs> but it is a great book. It's, I really enjoyed it. It's not even that long for a Brandon Sanderson book. We'll get to that. <laughs> okay, so Miss Born, The Final Empire, was written by Brandon Sanderson and published in 2006. Was it initially just published with the title Miss Born? No, it was always Mistborn the Final Empire, but it often gets abbreviated to Mistborn, like Episode 4 is often abbreviated to Star Wars. That one was originally just Star Wars, though. There was no Episode 4. I was worried you were going to call me out on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's not. So there's there's the Mistborn series, which is like five books now. I think there's the Mistborn trilogy, which is the first three. But if you're just talking about the first one, usually you'll just say Mistborn. Because okay. my book just says Mistborn on the front, and there's no mention of the Final Empire anywhere. On the, the paperback copy that I have. I'm looking at the one Kirst has brought. And it does seem to in very large font. But in a much smaller font, it says The Final Empire. Hang on. I'm going to have to check out the printing. Uh, give me a second. Oh, there's maps. Let me see the maps. Um, sixth printing, so maybe they made a change somewhere along the way. I love maps. Luthadel. The Industrial District. I've also got some cool designs of like, um, like, like these things end up being oh, kind of cool. Okay. Okay, so front cover, Mistborn, nothing. Highly recommended. Author of Elantris. Oh, it does on the title page say Mistborn, the final empire. Title page is the primary source of information, Todd. Catalog what? 101. <laughs> the librarian's coming out. And <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. The final it, empire, there it the- is. The Final Empire does not sound like the first part of a trilogy. And that's and that's deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's playing with a lot of tropes about, you know, like the hero and the chosen one. And then like, yeah, that's, you know, to have the Final Empire be the first book is like, well, wait, how are you starting with the final thing? So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mistborn, the Final Empire is a high fantasy novel in which a group of plucky thieves hatch a plan to use magic to overthrow their emperor, who just happens to be an immortal god whose own magic is more powerful than they can imagine. So if that sounds interesting to you, uh, we recommend that you check this book out. Uh, You can get it on uh, Amazon by going to uh, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. You can also get it on, on Audible. Uh, by going to www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. And uh, I listened to the audiobook. Did you listen to the audiobook, Joe, you said? 
I did. Yes. It's, uh, I thought it was really, really good. It is a very well done. Even uh, at two and a half speed. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta three do. Days. It's, it's a lot. How, how long? It, it was 24 hours. So that's a 24 so hour read. Yeah. yeah. That's so disappointing. <laughs> uh, we were joking before we started recording that when you're doing a new work every week for a podcast, you sometimes make sacrifices and you can't really just, just wallow in the prose the way you might. Okay. Want you to. need to do like picture books every other week and then do like epic books the rest of the time <laughs> every now and then like when we did uh the edgar Allan poe short story mm-hmm. like that was just so pleasant <laughs> just to i wrote a i wrote a, a paper story. for my senior capstone class on the cat in the hat oh. it was very nice everyone else was doing like articles and stuff and i was like let's do a picture book anyway continue <laughs> it's uh i really liked it e- even at two and a half speed i thought it was i thought it was good and it moves along a, a, a nice uh, clip <laughs> especially at two and a half speed yeah. yeah if you ever feel like a book is slow just speed up the the speed it's it's hard to do when you're actually reading first yeah I, but... I read books on paper todd oh <laughs> i did that too i i try and do that for this but uh every once in a while i look at a book and i say nope that will not be read before the record date so yeah. it's audiobook while i'm doing other tasks as well uh, but let's talk a little bit about how we came to Mistborn. Todd, is this your first time reading it? No, I read this uh, in college. I had a tradition where after finals ended, um, uh, finals week in December is uh, on my birthday. So I would finish my finals and then as a birthday present, I would go and buy a book and then read that book over uh, Christmas break. And um, Mistborn was one of the books that I read. And I loved it. It was really good. And I read the sequel, and I have not read the third. It, continuing in a tradition that I have of starting <laughs> fantasy series and never finishing them, uh, I, the third book is out there waiting for me. That's a very easy tradition to fall into, I think. <laughs> I have had this book recommended to me many times and never got around to reading it or listening really? to it until this week. I've read um, – Brandon Sanderson has a series called The Reckoners, a trilogy – which is playing with the tropes of the superhero genre a lot more uh, than, than the fantasy genre. And I've read that trilogy. Uh, and But I never got around to Mistborn. It's one of those that's always been on my radar to get to. And now I have, and I enjoyed it. What about you, Kirsten? Um, I have a lot of friends who really love fantasy, and Brandon Sanderson lives in Utah. And so I had a lot of friends who had kind of connections to him that way. Um, so I decided to pick up one of his books, but I did not pick up Mistborn because I didn't want to get sucked into a series that I would feel obligated to finish. So I picked up uh, Elantris, which is his first book that's a standalone. Um, really enjoyed that. And so then I read the Mistborn trilogy and uh, a few others. But this is the only book of the trilogy I own because it's my favorite. So I keep rereading this one and um, you know, I don't like the other... I, I just really like origin stories, so I have a lot of fun with this one. But the series is worth finishing, Todd, so you should um, get I'm around sure to I that will. sometime. I'm yeah. sure Maybe maybe next year when we do the second part of the trilogy. Right. <laughs> but don't, don't feel obligated to uh, – just because you start a series doesn't doesn't imply any obligation that you have to finish it immediately. No, but I mean sometimes you at least want to give it like a little bit just to see if it gets better again. I just got stuck in an Orson Scott card series once where I was like eight books into it and I was really miserable and I'm just like, well, I actually – maybe I don't actually have to read this. Maybe I yeah, can do something else. So. There's so much good advice. If it's not giving you joy, let it go. <laughs> my uh, my white whale is the Wheel of Time. I'm the, yeah, I will be reading that for my entire life. 
We so, will mention that. Yes, there's a Sanderson tie. In there's there. a Sanderson tie. Uh, my brother-in-law has joked about um, wanting to become a patron and just say, "I want you to do the Wheel of Time series." That's <laughs> <laughs> his patron request. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Let's see here. So Kirsta was kind enough to put together the trivia trivia for this. So I'm going to read this off because she's reading the long summary. So I'll read off the. Uh, the trivia that she wrote. Uh, as has already been mentioned, Mistborn, uh, The Final Empire, is the first book in the Mistborn trilogy. Um, his first book, uh, Brandon Sanderson's first book, is a standalone book called Elantris. That was published in 2005. The Mistborn trilogy was all published between 2006 and 2008, which should just start to give you a sense that this man is prolific. Like, there are <laughs> some series out there where fans of that series are waiting for the closing chapters to be published. Uh, Game of Thrones, famously, is one of those. Uh, the King Killer chronicles by patrick rothfuss has two parts of a trilogy and and lots of people waiting for the third part but <laughs> brandon sanderson kind of moves at a good clip for i don't think i put this in trivia but he actually wrote the entire trilogy all at once before the first one was published and so um he had to go through and edit them and, and stuff but like they're very very internally consistent because he had the whole thing done mm. and then they published the first one okay the same year that the first Mistborn book was published, another fantasy author named Robert Jordan announced that he had been diagnosed with terminal heart disease. Jordan died the following year, leaving his epic fantasy series, The Wheel of Time, unfinished. Later that year, his publisher announced that Brandon Sanderson had been selected to finish the series based on extensive notes that Jordan had left behind when he realized that he would not be able to finish the series himself. Uh, and that, I I think, is when Sanderson became like amongst fantasy Fans, a household name, uh, yeah. is when he finished the Wheel of Time yeah. series. He tells a story um, because it was, you know, especially among fantasy authors, there's a lot of buzz about like, okay, who's going to finish the series? And he tells a story about having um, uh, Robert McJordan's widow, who's also his editor, she called him and left a message on his answering machine was like, hey, I'd like to talk to you. And he thought it was a prank. He just thought it was one of his friends like being like, oh, yeah, sure. You like, because obviously what she didn't want to talk to me about. And he says, you know, at first I thought, ha ha, it's a prank. And then I had this really sinking f- feeling what if it's not a prank? What if she's actually calling to talk to me? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that kind of launched him into a new era. Yes. Uh, so Sanderson, as I kind of alluded to earlier, he's very prolific. Uh, his first book was published in 2005 and in the now dozen years since then, he has published 35 to 40 works, including novellas and short stories. He's also in the middle of a new series set in the Mistborn world, 300 years after the events of this trilogy. Um, and almost all of Brandon Sanderson's works are set in the same fictional universe called the Cosmere. And there's a character, Hoyd, who shows up in all or almost all of his Cosmere stories. Is he in this story? He is. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. He's He's got a very small part in each of the stories, kind of a blink and you'll miss him, mm-hmm. miss yeah. it kind of thing. Um, it's It doesn't make it into the summary, but I'll tell you right now, when Kelsier goes and talks to an informant, the informant he talks to is Hoyt. Oh, oh the one that pretends like he's blind, but he's really uh-huh. Oh, okay. Um, cool. isn't, uh, Stephen King does a similar thing where a huge percentage of his works are in the sprawling uh, Dark Tower world, but like they feel inter- uh, like they're not connected, but there's one character who like gets shared between those, I think. I just thought you were going to say they're all in Maine. Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, other tropes that are pretty common in Brandon Sanderson works include cities. He likes to set his books in cities in part to contrast with other fantasy writers where if you've ever read a lot of fantasy, a lot of it is in rural settings. 
Uh, he often addresses the idea of godhood or of mortal characters becoming gods, as well as discussing religion. That gets <laughs> done quite a bit in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he likes foreshadowing and reveals. Most of his books have multiple reveals at the end. And he is known for writing very long books. Uh, the books in a Stormlight Archive series are around 1,000 pages each. Uh, he is known for inventing creative magic systems that are also very rule-based. Because of that, he coined Sanderson's first law, which states an author's ability to solve conflict satisfactorily with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic. <laughs> so basically... He's not a fan of hand-wavy magic. Right. Well, he doesn't... He's okay with hand-wavy magic. You just can't use it to, like, beat the final boss. Because otherwise, it's, it's a deus ex machina. So, mm-hmm. like... Um, like he's, you know, he kind of, he talks about um, like uh, Gandalf's magic where you're not really sure how it works or what he can do, but he also doesn't use it very often and like almost dies the one time he uses it. So, um, so like, yeah, it's, it's okay to have magic, not have rules, but then you just are more limited in what you can do with it. Right. Uh, his website includes extensive author annotations, which are kind of like a director's commentary for each of his books. They do include spoilers, but the spoilers are hidden by default. So you can read the annotations along with every chapter if you want. And Kirsty, you say you usually go and read the annotations. Mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for behind the scenes information. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> uh, and if you want more Brandon Sanderson, you can listen to his podcast, Writing Excuses, where he and other hosts give advice to aspiring writers. They're currently in season 12. So you have a lot of archives to go through if you're interested, of course, after you finish the protagonist podcast archives. Obviously. Have you guys listened to, to Writing Excuses? Oh, yeah. It's quite good. I, mm-hmm. I have not. I need to. Because I fall under that diagram of, of aspiring writers. <laughs> well, and I'll say, um, I started kind of listening to it as a fluke, but, um, and because I'm not a writer and I have no intention of being one. And after listening to the podcast for, you know, 10 plus years, I don't think I'm going to become one if I, if I haven't yet. <laughs> but he really changed, um, he changed me as a reader, especially when it comes to like fantasy and world building. Like there's, I'm a lot more aware of certain mechanics of authors. And I'm also a lot more aware of um, different kinds of genres and what different people are trying to do. So instead of just being like, that's a boring genre that boring people like, it's like, okay, no, this is trying to do a different thing that maybe is not really my thing. But so, you know, even if you just like, um, literature analysis, which you probably do since you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, this one. That one, that one's also recommended. All right. Dear listeners, this is the longest summary I have ever written by far. This is a very complicated story. And I even cut out whole plot lines and characters. Um, so if you actually read the book, you'll have that as a bonus. <laughs> so my apologies for not doing justice to the book. If something seems unimpressive or... Um, Badly foreshadowed, that is the fault of me and not the fault of Brandon Sanderson. Here we go. The final empire is a land where the sun is red, the sky is full of volcanic ash, and all plants are brown or yellow. By night, the air is full of a thick, mysterious mist. The population of the final empire is divided into several groups, including the serfs or ska, the nobility who rule over the ska, and the lord ruler, an immortal being who's both their emperor and their god. The nobility and Ska are strictly forbidden from marrying each other, and any illegitimate half-breed children are hunted and killed by the government. A mysterious stranger has come to visit the Ska who work on the plantation of Lord Trusting, a nobleman who is cruel even by the standards of the nobility. The visitor has hundreds of small scars running up and down his forearms, signs of someone who has worked in the mines at the pits of Hothson, but no one ever returns from the pits alive. He introduces himself as Kelsier, and he says that a Ska revolution is imminent. The Ska are skeptical. They're more focused on day-to-day survival, but they're grateful for the food Kelsier brings them, stolen from Lord Trusting's pantry. In the morning, the Ska discover that the manor house has been burned to the ground, and Trusting is dead. 
Kelsier travels to Luthadel, the capital city of the final empire. He meets up with Dox, an old friend, to discuss a new job he's planning. Dox and Kelsier run through a list of people they want to recruit. Dox also mentions that there is another person of interest who may be useful to them if she hasn't already attracted attention from the wrong people. Vin is a scrawny 16-year-old member of a thieving crew in Luthadel. Her ska mother is dead, and her father is a nobleman who doesn't even know she exists. Her older brother, Reen, also used to be a part of the crew, but he abandoned her six months ago, leaving her to fend for herself and destroying what little trust she had in others. Vin has a special ability she refers to as luck. It gives her the power to influence the emotions of others, calming them and making them more trusting. It's a finite resource. If she uses too much of it, it takes a long time to build up her reserves again, and she doesn't really understand what her luck is or why she has it. But it's a pretty useful skill when you're trying to run a scam on someone, or trying to stop your crew leader from giving you a beating. Vin's crew has a new job that involves scamming an obligator, an official who serves as both a bureaucrat and a religious leader of the Lord Ruler. Cayman, Vin's crew leader, brings her along so that she can use her luck to convince the obligator to work with them. The job seems to go off as planned, and the obligator gives them a huge amount of money, but Vin thinks it was too easy. She's worried that it may have been a trap. Kelsier and Docs have been trailing Vin, and they realize that she has indeed fallen into a trap. The obligator she tried to scam is suspicious of her, and she is now being followed by an inquisitor, a creature who looks human but has large steel spikes where his eyes should be. Inquisitors are incredibly strong, incredibly fast, and they possess other powers not understood by Scar and Oblomond. They serve on, as just real quick. Yes, the spikes just for listeners who they're not going out from their eyes; they're going in, in through yeah. the back of their head. Yeah, Inquisitors are disturbing. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They serve as the police force of the final empire, and one of their responsibilities is, is to track down illegal half-breeds like Vin. Kelsier distracts the Inquisitor so that he loses Vin's trail. Meanwhile, Vin is panicked enough that she's making plans to leave Cayman's crew. Cayman catches wind of this, thinks that she's going to turn informant, and decides to teach her a lesson. He's about to give her the beating of her life when Kelsier walks in, and they suddenly all feel very, very calm. Vin realizes that Kelsier is losing, using luck on her and the rest of the crew, but at a much more powerful level than she has ever been able to manage. He orders the entire crew out of the hideout, except for Vin. Kelsier introduces himself and explains that Vin's luck is actually allomancy, a magic ability that is genetically passed down among the nobility. When allomancers drink a solution containing flakes of metal, they can allomantically burn the metal to draw on its powers. There are eight basic metals, although most allomancers can only draw on the powers of a single metal. These allomancers are called mistings. However, there are rare Allomancers who can draw on all the metals. These Allomancers are called Mistborn. Kelsier is a Mistborn, and so is Vin. Vin has never had access to Allomantic metals, but she has apparently instinctively learned to use tiny amounts of trace metals in food and water to her advantage. Kelsier explains that the metals occur in pairs. Iron pulls on nearby metals while steel pushes on them. This could allow an Allomancer to fly up to a metal balcony or push a metal-tipped spear away from them. Pewter enhances the physical abilities of an Allomancer, such as strength, speed, and balance, while tin enhances the senses, allowing an Allomancer to see through the mist or hear a distant conversation. Zinc allows an Allomancer to soothe the emotions of others. This is the power Vin thought of as luck, while brass allows an Allomancer to inflame the emotions of others. Bronze allows an Allomancer to sense if others are using Allomancy, while copper allows an Allomancer to hide their Allomancy. Later, Kelsier has gathered together his full team of misting specialists and explains that he's planning to overthrow the final empire itself. Specifically, he's going to raise a ska army, pit the nobility against each other in a house war, and kill the Lord Ruler. The job seems insane, but Kelsier is deadly serious. Other ska thieving crews are only after money, and Kelsier used to feel the same way, but a job went very wrong several years ago, and he and his wife were caught and sent to the, to the pits of Hofsen as punishment. 
Kelsier's wife died there, after which Kelsier discovered he was a mistborn and used his powers to escape. Now he wants revenge against the nobility and especially the Lord Ruler. This job is unlike any of the other crew members have ever done, but each of them has experienced the cruelty of the nobility, who view the lives of the Ska as worthless. Their cover is House Renew, a minor noble house from the provinces that is looking to establish a presence in Luthadel. The crew wonders how Kelsier convinced an actual nobleman to work with them. Kelsier hints that he has killed the real Lord Renew and somehow replaced him with a perfect double. Everyone in the team has a role to play, and Vince is to act the part of Lord Renew's cousin, a young noblewoman who will attend balls and other social events in Luthadel so that she can keep an ear out for noble gossip or intrigue. By night, Kelsier will train her in mistborn fighting tactics. He starts by giving her a mist cloak, a garment made of hundreds of strips of cloth that will hide her form in the night and allow her to carry some extra vials of alimantic metals with her. Working with Kelsier's crew is a very different experience for Vin. Kelsier's people seem to genuinely trust and like each other. Vin is still suspicious of everyone, and she feels that she doesn't fit in. Also joining the group is Sazed. He's a terraceman, an ethnic group that traditionally serves the nobility. He's tall and thin and wears copious amounts of metal jewelry, including bracelets and earrings. His job is to teach Vin enough court etiquette that she can pass herself off as a noblewoman. He will accompany her to balls and other social events, ostensibly as Lord Renew's steward, but really so that he can gather information himself. I love Sazed. Sazed, okay. Sazed is so great, especially in the third book. Like, Sazed alone is reason to finish the trilogy. Okay. He's, well, now that he's one of my favorite characters in this one. Yes. I would say, like, I'll put it on my list, but right. we all know that that's not going to happen until we do it for the podcast. So we this need to hurry. <laughs> we need okay. to hurry and get to book three. I love Sazed. He is mm-hmm. uh, amazing. One of my favorite characters in maybe all of fiction. <laughs> he mm-hmm. is so cool. Yeah, he's such a sweetheart. Okay. Sazed is also a keeper, a member of a small group of terracemen who clandestinely collect, memorize, and exchange information that has been suppressed by the Lord Ruler. Sazed specialty is the religions that existed before the Lord Ruler came to power. Sazed and Kelsier often have discussions about different types of religion and the power of belief. Finn's first ball is at Keep Venture home of the most prominent noble family in Luthadel. At the ball, Vin accidentally encounters a young, rumpled nobleman who's hiding out on a balcony so he can read. They have a brief conversation, and he introduces himself as Lord Elland. After their conversation, she finds out that he is actually Lord Ellen Venture, heir to House Venture. Sazed is concerned by this development. Ellen Venture is an important nobleman, but he also has a reputation for being very eccentric. Vin is supposed to attend the balls to get information about the political intrigue of the noble houses, but if she gets too close to Ellen, she could become the subject of scandalous gossip herself. Kelsier is going out on a scouting trip to Credit Shaw, home of the Lord Ruler. Vin follows him, and Kelsier agrees to let her come, since he knows she will just follow him anyway. They break in, but there are Inquisitors waiting for them. Vin and Kelsier are separated in the attack. Kelsier escapes, but Vin finds herself seriously wounded and pursued by an Inquisitor. Just as Vin is about to black out, someone appears to rescue her. When Vin regains consciousness back in the hideout, she learns that it was Sazed. Sazed is a Farukamist, not an Allomancer. Where Allomancy allows someone to draw different types of power from different metals, Farukami allows them to store some of their own physical abilities in metal to draw from at a later date. So a Farukamist could temporarily make themselves weaker in order to later employ a burst of strength. The bracelets and earrings Sazed wears are not decorative, but functional. Sazed used his jewelry to store both ferrochemical strength and vision in order to find Vin, distract the Inquisitor, and rescue her from Credit Shaw. Even with her pewter-enhanced healing, it takes weeks before Vin is healthy enough to resume her social life in Luthadel. When she returns to the ball, she continues to interact with Elland. As they get to know each other, they have long conversations about politics, the relationship between the nobility and the Ska, and the state of the final empire. Some of Elland's opinions seem surprisingly revolutionary for, no- for a nobleman, and Vin wonders if they're all as bad as Kelsier and the others say. 
Finn is careful to maintain her cover, but she realizes that she is more comfortable around Ellen than she is around anyone else, and she wishes she could tell him the truth about who she really is, especially after he hints that he's interested in a more serious relationship. Kelsier has been successful in seeding a house war, and members of the nobility are being assassinated right and left, but the balls continue in Luthadel as though nothing is wrong. Some of Ellen's friends are unhappy that he's spending so much time with Vin. They worry that a relative stranger has become so close to him so quickly, especially in the midst of such political tension. One of them sends a spy to follow her after a ball, and discovers that the carriage that is ostensibly taking her out of Luthadel to Lord Renew's estate is actually empty. They assume that she is really a spy from one of the other noble houses, planted at the balls to get close to Ellen. Ellen still cares about her, but accepts the fact that she has lied to him, and probably doesn't really care about him. He coldly breaks things off with her at the next ball, hoping it will convince her to leave Luthadel entirely and go to a safer place. Vin is crushed that yet another person she loves is abandoning her. Later, she learns that one of the other noble houses is planning to assassinate Ellen that evening. Vin decides to save Ellen's life, despite his rejection, because she realizes she loves him. Vin fights and kills the other house's misborn assassin. One of Kelsier's team members goes missing and they fear he's been captured and tortured by Inquisitors, exposing all of them. Later, the Inquisitors capture Lord Renew and another crew member, along with innocent servants from Lord Renew's estate. The captives are set to be publicly executed when Kelsier decides to intervene. He fights an Inquisitor and, amazingly, wins. However, the executions and subsequent fight have attracted the attention of the Lord Ruler himself. His carriage arrives and he steps out, dressed in black, wearing many bracelets and rings, and surprisingly young-looking for someone who is hundreds of years old. Kelsier puts up a fight, but the Lord Ruler kills him easily. Vin witnesses the events and is inconsolable that Kelsier, the first person who was ever kind to her, is dead. When the crew returns to the hideout, Kelsier has left a note. He tells the crew that he selected them not just because of their abilities, but because they were good people who would be able to lead the Scar Revolution in the event of his death. The crew is directed to a warehouse which has stockpiles of weapons and other supplies. Also, there's someone hiding in the shadows. It looks just like Kelsier, but it's not him. It's a chondra, a creature that can ingest the bones of a dead person and take on their likeness. <laughs> and Andrew's making a face. Andrew, uh, I, made a very weird face. I, over promise this, I, I promise this is better foreshadowed in the books. In my summary, it comes out of nowhere. Did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> this is the creature that pretended to be Lord Renew. Kelsier hoped that he would be able to accomplish his plan without dying, but in the event of his death, Kelsier hired the Chondra to take on his likeness, visit the Ska, and convince them that he had come back from the dead. Sazed realizes that Kelsier was interested in religion because he was trying to give the Ska something to believe in, other than the Lord Ruler. Vin decides to go back to Credit Shaw to attack the Lord Ruler. She's captured by Inquisitors, who take her miscloak and throw her in a cage. One of them threatens to torture her, saying that they caught her brother, Reen, months ago, and tried to torture him to find out her location, but he died before he gave her up. Sazed comes to Credit Shaw to rescue Vin, but is also captured by the Inquisitors, stripped of his jewelry, and thrown in Vin's cage. However, Sazed has a plan. Before he left, he swallowed some metal in which he had stored some strength. Drawing on his powers, he's able to become strong enough to break both him and Vin out of the cage. After they break out, Vin finds her miscloak, which still contains a vial of alimantic metals. Ellen has learned that Vin was a ska thief running a scam, not a noble spy, and he realizes he dumped her for no reason. He goes to Credit Shaw to rescue her, even though he has no powers or fighting experience. As a mistborn, Vin doesn't actually need rescuing, <laughs> but she is touched that he came back for her. <laughs> Vin has a new idea for how to kill the Lord Ruler, so she heads back to the throne room. Vin guesses that two of the bracelets worn by the Lord Ruler may be the source of his power. She uses her allomancy to pull the bracelets off his body. He goes after them, but he ages rapidly with every step, becoming middle-aged, then old, then ancient. Vin walks over to him and stabs him in the heart with a spear. Later, Sazed explains that the Lord Ruler must have been both an allomancer and a ferrucamist. His ferrucamy allowed him to store physical qualities such as youth in metal, while his allomancy allowed him to burn the metal and draw more power from it than he put in, 
effectively making him immortal. Finn hasn't spoken to Ellen since the events at Credit Shaw. Ellen has been able to convince the Ska not to rebel completely, but they're still going to have to figure out how to create a new government. This is the first book in a trilogy, after all. Yes. <laughs> Vin goes to keep Venture to find him, but when she arrives, she has second thoughts. Everything has changed. She's no longer a noblewoman, not even a fake one, and she wonders if she deserves to be with someone like him. Then she remembers the Inquisitor saying that Ring didn't abandon her after all, and she decides that maybe she should give her relationship with Ellen a chance. Before she can change her mind, she jumps through a broken skylight in Ellen's study and teasingly chastises him for reading in the presence of a lady. He jumps up and embraces her, and she realizes that she is finally happy. That wow. was amazing. Uh, that was amazing. <laughs> it was the best summary of that massive book that I can imagine. I have only, been like, working on this summary for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that was really good. Great summary. Uh, obviously, I think we're going to be talking about the character of Vin. And I was wondering if we should play the game that we haven't done for a while of let's each try and name some characteristics of Vin. Oh, uh, sure. Like what makes her the best character or, or like just a great character. I think she is definitely a great character and a great story. So uh, let's try and see if we can get up to 10. Sometimes we lose track. We forget 10 to total or 10 each, 10 total. Okay. We'll go around. Uh, I guess I can go first. And it's kind of interesting to do this for Vin because she, she has a massive arc. Like mm-hmm. she is a very different character yes. at the end of the beginning. So maybe we also need to like add the caveat of which version of Vin we're talking about. Um, I had it before I started this and now I can't remember the word. Can I say one thing about what you just said though? It's interesting to think, uh, um, it, is there, are there characteristics that, that stay with her throughout? Like, is she a completely different person or, or are there characteristics that, that's, that stay with her? No, I, I think, think there are. I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll probably stumble upon some. Right. Uh, so early Vin, um, so I'm going to go with like suspicious. She Very suspicious. <laughs> she is uh, about as opposite of trusting as it is possible. The, the to fun be. thing about Vin, so so the book is written in third person limited, but Vin is so suspicious of other people that her sections are almost unreliable narrator because, yeah. you know, when she's first, when she's first meeting Kelsier and trying to figure out what he wants from her, she'll be like, obviously he's going to, you know, leverage knowledge against me to, to put me under his power. And Kelsier's like, like, of course, I'll tell you anything you want to know. And she's like, what? What? I don't understand. You know, or like, obviously, you're going to, she's you like, know. Well, what, are you, what is he still holding? Like, she's right. just, she doesn't right. trust anything that's told to her. Yeah. And she's always looking for the, the angle or the, the I, I mean, there's early on, there's established this theme of like, there's always another hidden secret. Mm-hmm. Like, so when you when you find the secret door or, or the secret panel, just know like the drawer you pull out from the secret panel probably has a secret bottom. And you're right. going to be able to look, right. to look there. And she is always on guard for what the secret motivation there, uh, yeah. of everyone that around her uh, has. There are also some fun kind of cat and mouse things at the very beginning with her and the other members of the crew because – you know, she's really smart. She's this very experienced thief, but so are they. And so, like, she'll go and follow Kelsier because she wants to know what he's doing. <laughs> and then he'll, like, do something to distract her to make her think he's somewhere else. And then, like, she'll, he'll, like, come up behind her and be like, Vin, stop following me, you know? <laughs> um, or she'll, or she'll be, like, listening at a door, but trying not to let people know she's listening, but then they'll know she's listening. And then she's, like, trying to pretend, like, oh, I was just sleeping, yawn. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really fun. All right, Todd, do you want to offer a characteristic of Vin? Um, one of the things that I love most about Vin is that she's very self-reflective. She thinks a lot about, uh, like who she is and what's going on inside of her. I, I really liked, I, I appreciated that with this reading. Um, there's a lot of self-reflection that goes on, which, uh, I think helps the reader to kind of see the, the journey that she's on. 
uh, and she reaches a point where she says, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not Vin, but I'm also not, uh, what's her name? Valette? Valette. Valette. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and like wondering kind of who is she really? And I love, uh, that, uh, that aspect of her character. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so Valette was her name when she was pretending to be um, a noble woman. I don't think I brought that up in the summary. Yes. Um, I think I would say strong. I, you know, both in terms of um, having like, like being strong enough to sort of survive the streets or whatever. But even when she's, even when she's like learning her allomancy and guys, there are such great fight scenes and training scenes <laughs> that I just so good. skipped over. Um, but Kelsier is always, always mentions. I mean, Kelsier is like, you know, a man who's twice her age, he's a lot bigger than her, but like he always mentions that she is so strong. And when she's, you know, fighting the Inquisitors or fighting the Lord Ruler, she's just, um, yeah, is, is really a very amazingly strong person. Yeah. And I think that's one of those qualities that carries through from mm-hmm. the early, very individualistic, very suspicious, very um, uh, loner. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, she's part of a crew, but she's not, she's, she's separate uh, to the, the various stages that we see of her throughout this novel. Uh, that that strength is always there. I'm also going to go ahead and throw out bold, kind of similar, mm-hmm. but like when she is training in this new skill set, um, she's given tasks and she just does them. <laughs> and and like, everyone's like, I was not willing to do that. Right. <laughs> like when I or was, it took me months to learn to do yeah, that. Yeah, it took me months or I wasn't willing to jump off the roof mm-hmm. and trust that this new skill is going to lower me. And she's just like, he said yeah. it's going to work. I might as well try it. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna say smart. Oh, she's very, very smart. <laughs> like uh, clever. I mean, she's not book yeah. smart. She she barely reads. And as as the as the book goes on, she gets better at reading and and um and actually learns to enjoy reading. But she is just really sharp. And I I love. There's a scene early on when she's meeting with the with the crew, and they're all these seasoned. Thieves, and she's she's been a thief her whole life, but she's also never been a leader of thieves. And she's only what sixteen? Mm-hmm. Is that the right age? Yeah, yeah she's 16. sixteen when it starts, and then like seventeen or eighteen, maybe by the time. It and ends. they're planning they're planning this really intense strategy of how they're going to bring down the empire, and it's it's extremely complicated and has to do with things that she should not understand. And she doesn't really understand completely, but she understands the general principles of what they're doing. And when they say, what do you think, Vin? Then she says, well, uh, this is what I think. And it's the, the like the best, most obvious answer. Uh, and, but it's and also so, like what she offers, because she's not as experienced. Sometimes what she offers is kind of an abstract, like, well, um, like they say, right. like if, if you wanted to... If, if you're facing a larger foe, because they're trying to figure out how, what are they going to do with right. the garrison of soldiers, what do you do? And she just kind of says... Well, I try and distract them, and I try and get around them. I don't try and fight them <laughs> yeah. head on. And everyone kind of goes, "Okay, we can work with that." Like, that's an idea <laughs> we can work with, and no one else in the room had come up with that. Yeah. You know that concept. So she might not have the specifics for the complexities of the issues that are being faced, but she had a lot of those uh, insights into um, ways that that could work, and together the whole group can work out. Now, how do we apply that? Yeah. Okay, I would say stubborn. So <laughs> stubborn. <laughs> so like like Kelsier, I mean, if she if she had just done what Kelsier had said along the way, her training would have been much easier. She keeps, you know, but she she'll follow him and she'll like um try things out. There's I didn't mention it, there are some 
higher metals besides the eight metals and um and she like burns them to find out what they do and some of them are kind of unpleasant and she's like and he's like look i tried to warn you that you shouldn't do that she was like well she, she's always someone who has to like try things out for herself mm-hmm. yeah that goes very well into what i was going to say as medics which was she's curious mm-hmm. um and that stubbornness and that strength and that boldness like all go together to like get her into situations that Maybe she shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't always be in, uh, but that um, I think one of my favorite moments for demonstrating her curiosity uh, was when Kelsey was like, "You know what? If you're not going to be all in, I don't want you in my crew. Like this isn't going to work." Uh, and it's not because I don't think you're talented; it's because I need people who are going to be committed. And he gives her an out, and finally she says, "No, I'm going to stay." And he's like, "Why are you staying?" And she just goes, "I want to see what happens." Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> it is strictly curiosity. It's not some noble cause. Right. It's not, um, you know, this hire of like, I want to free all the slaves or anything like that. She's like, this plan is insane. And I want to see what happens <laughs> as we try and implement this plan. Um, I'm remembering th- thinking about her stubbornness and her curiosity when um, she follows uh, Kel into the night and he's going to go to, to the Lord Ruler's um to credit like shock. Castle. Yeah. yeah credit shock. And he <laughs> says, I'm going there. And she says, I'm coming with you. And he says, no, it's too dangerous. And she says, no, I'm coming with you. And finally he's just like, okay, I'm going to teach you like <laughs> to, you know, the, this skill to use so that maybe you don't die. But I know that there's no way that you don't follow me into this place. There's nothing I can say or do that will keep you from doing this. So I'll just do the best I can knowing that you'll probably die. But like, there's... <laughs> It's just no stopping her once she gets her mind on something, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool and allows her to you know come out on top in the end. Um, I'm going to say, I think that Vin, despite her individuality and her stubbornness and everything, I think for in order for a character to change as much as she does uh, and to and to be as um, kind of self-aware as she is that it requires a, a healthy dose of humility. And, um, <laughs> I remember that she gets with Ellen because I've read the second book, <laughs> but spoiler. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no. At, well, like, at the very beginning of the second book, they are together. Yes. And so, so I, this book is ending and she's sitting up on the roof and she's looking down through the skylight. I'm like, okay, now it's time because I had forgotten what actually happens. <laughs> uh, okay, it's time to like drop down and you know, uh, give him, give him a, you know, let him know that you care about him. And she's like, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And then she remembers or realizes that her brother had not, uh, had not betrayed her, and she has the humility to just say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a risk, despite. All of the, all of the conditioning that she's had to to not, uh, to not trust people and to guard herself, she's humble enough in the end to say, "I'm gonna open, uh, be open to learning how to how to care about other people," and I think that's really important. All right, this is I'm gonna throw this out here now, and I think we should come back to it for a larger discussion point. But in a lot of ways, that reminds me of Nami from our One Piece episode, yes, um, where. There's this incredible female character who is absolutely not the damsel in distress in any way, who is as um, skilled and competent in every way imaginable as any of the male characters that you see. But the um, 
character evolution that needs to happen is this ability to trust and to lean on <laughs> and, uh-huh. and admit that you need someone else. Um, and I think it's, I want us to come back and kind of talk about how like this inversion of uh, the damsel in distress trope sometimes ends up with the, the next stage for this character's progression is to not be the sole independent mm-hmm. character anymore. And I should say, um, going back to when Ellen comes back to, for Vin and, and credit Shaw, I mean, she is, she is, overwhelmed that he came back for her which is funny because it's like not because she actually needs to be physically rescued but because like for the first time in her life someone left her and came back <laughs> like people have never come back um it's also a funny scene because because um among the nobility you don't reveal if you're a mistborn or a misting because it's sort of like the secret weapon that your house has and so ellen has no idea and it's like she's like flying through the air and like killing all the <laughs> so cool. just like oh hey you're a mistborn maybe <laughs> you could have yeah maybe you could have told me that so um so is it me yes uh i'm going to say that she has a big heart um i think that that's why eventually she does fit in so well with Kelsier's crew is because she, and in some ways she cares more than they do like she's the one who um who doesn't think that nobility are all bad because they're just convinced that like all the nobility are evil and she's like well you know maybe we shouldn't torch everyone like at one point isn't Kelsier that um oh suddenly I'm blanking on the name the religious man that says uh, it says it he, he he will ask people like what do you believe in mm-hmm. and He's just like the most common answer he gets is I don't know. And at one point, doesn't Kelsey say, "Is killing nobles something you can believe in?" <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that's why I think that's why it hurts her so much that people she's relied on have left her and abandoned her, especially her brother. Um, you know, because if she didn't have that heart in the first place, she wouldn't care. She would just be as kind of dead as as the rest of them. But she's. You know, she still cares, which is kind of a liability at the beginning of the book, but it's a, it's a strength by the end of it. And mine's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, it's not like counter to yours, but I, th- I think the way they, they interact. Um, over and over in the beginning of the book, one thing that was so interesting to me, and, and this might not be the best word for it, but I, I'll explain the idea I'm trying to get behind. But like this reclusiveness of her, like I love the descriptions of how she'll be in the room uh, of all, the, the, a crowded room, but somehow she finds the quietest spot and pulls in on herself. Yeah. Uh, and she's, she... This does change, obviously, when, you know, she's going to fight God at the end. <laughs> but she she um, has this um, ability to become, like, the least notable thing yeah. in the room. But it's a choice that she's mm-hmm. making. It's not, um, you know, that she's, you know, unexceptional or anything. She's choosing to present this front of almost being part of the background. And I love the descriptions that Brandon Sanderson gives. And also, as far as the evolution of the character, to see that transition mm-hmm. um, to that character at the beginning who in a room full of ruffians and thieves will hide in the corner being the one to go confront, you know, this, this being that's been immortal and, Mm -hmm. you know, guiding the, the planet for uh, how long is it that it says? A thousand years. Yeah. A thousand years. years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, And I think that visual dynamic of from being, you know, the quiet mouse in the corner to being, the person standing up in front and confronting the, you know, the greatest evil <laughs> on the earth is uh, shows this evolution. And I love that this feels natural uh, that Brendan yeah. Sanderson wrote this transition and this transformation in Vin uh, in such a way that it works. Speaking of his writing, I love uh, the, f- as you were, as you were saying, the physical descriptions, the way that she sits with her feet kind of curled up under her and with her mist cloak, 
kind of hanging around her so you can just you can imagine this like disembodied head yes. <laughs> it's the only thing that's there um and she actually despite having defeated the lord ruler if i remember right in the second book she still kind of sits like that uh, a lot like she she makes herself intentionally small i also love when she goes to the ball for the first time and she's so scared because here she's been hiding her whole life, and now she has to be this noble woman with this uh, dress, with a low-cut uh, neckline, and she's so scared until she realizes that nobody can actually see her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're, the, all they see is Valette, uh, but nobody sees Vin anyway, and she's like, oh, I can hide inside of here too. Um, and it's just it's another mask, which gets into our whole discussion from the Scarlet Pimpernel <laughs> about masks and um, secret identities and things. A- and then how do you know what her true identity is? Uh, anyway, I think that's all really, really interesting. Um, I, ha- I have to say, um, speaking of the Scarlet Pimpernel, I as I was reading as I was reading through this time, I suddenly had this vision of like a Scarlet Pimpernel character trying to get nobles out of Luthadel when they're all being killed. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I may have to write that crossover fanfic sometime. <laughs> I think uh, I don't know I don't know how to describe this character this characteristic in a way that doesn't sound terrible. Um, but I mean, we've talked about how reclusive she is and suspicious. But I think the very last line of this book is really telling about who um, who Vin is, uh, and so she's she's gone back. She's looking at Ellen. Uh, she's about to walk away from him, and then she realizes, you know what? I'm going to give this a chance. So she dumps down the the skylight into his room, and then he's happy to see her, and they embrace. And it says Vin closed her eyes, simply feeling the warmth of being held, and realized that was all she had ever really wanted. And I think um, when we talk a lot about like motivation, if you can if you can figure out a character's motivation, you can understand what's going on with them a lot more. And it's interesting to think that as suspicious and uh, guarded as Vin is, the one thing that she's always wanted is is that like a, a safe uh, relationship. And I, I think it's really cool. So I mean, the, I think the word that comes to mind is needy. Like she needs. Somebody, but not needy in in like that crummy, <laughs> in that crummy way, but in in that like genuinely human way. She needs a safe attachment with somebody, and uh, and she finally gets it, and it's really satisfying in the end when she does. Even though she does, she doesn't realize that that's what she needs or wants. That's what she that's what she wants and desperately needs. Which uh, episode? Do you remember what character we were talking about when we went on the large tangent about the Harvard longitudinal study of happiness and? Uh, well, uh, White Christmas. Oh, White Christmas, right? Uh, and yes. I think um, when we're saying like she wants to be held by um, what's his name? I'm horrible with these names. Ellen. Ellen. I see names sometimes get the best of me. <laughs> <laughs> by Ellen. Yeah. It's not that she. I, I. It's the the warmth that she wants isn't just a romantic relationship. Like she just wants that what what the Harvard longitudinal study said like warm relationships, like right. affectionate happy, uh, caring relationships, which can be family relationships that can be friendships that can be romantic, re- uh, relationships. But what's been missing from her life, uh, is any warm relationship. Yeah. It's what Bowlby would call like a safe, uh, a secure attachment, right? She needs, she doesn't need a man. She needs a warm, safe, uh, securely attached relationship. Somebody that w- that has got her back that she knows will not turn on her 
and that she can give that same security back to, um, that's what she needs. And that's what everybody needs. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether you like it or not, <laughs> whether you think you do or not, that's what we all need. So how many are we up to? 11, I think? I think we've done yeah, okay. we, we, we've cleared 10, so you don't have to opt for another one, Kirsten. <laughs> Can we talk about Seizid? Yes. I think he is so cool. <laughs> it's, uh, every, sometimes, sometimes I think, I could, I could write a fantasy story, and then I read, read something like this, and I think, there is no way. That Sanderson guy is a genius. Uh, like, just the, 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 to think of a character like Seizid... Who, so Seizid's job is to uh, store memories. The people of his race, they store memory in metal that then they wear on their, on their body. So they, they have all kinds of piercings and necklaces and bracelets and things. And inside of those are memories. And one of the things that, they're, um, that, they, are, that they are tasked to, to try to remember and, and uh, maintain, recover and maintain – are the religions of the world because when the Lord Ruler came into power a thousand years ago, he eliminated all religions from the earth. Uh, but these um, are they called keepers? What are they called? Keepers, keepers. Yeah, yeah. The keepers are supposed to. Um, I mean, they're they're trying to fight against the Lord Ruler by remembering all the religions, and so there are all of these fascinating conversations between Sezed and other members of the crew in which he will uh, like make a pitch. Uh, of a religion to them and he'll say you i think you would really like the religion of the so-and-so people because this is what they believe they believe that um that every bad thing that there was a finite amount of bad luck in the in your lifetime and so every time something bad happened to you you would celebrate because it means that you're like purging yourself of all the bad things and there's just more good times ahead Mm -hmm. and or or the the people who ride around on boats and make maps and they just they worship like discovery and uh, uh, the star are, one, the, the they worship the night stars. Yes, yes. But the the sun is the jealous brother's eye, and the, right. yes. all the stars are the eyes of the good god. Right. It's so that's cool. one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah, he's he's a really fun character because he's he's almost like a missionary, but he's like a missionary of every religion, of believing in something. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Of just you know, it's like it's like kind of like. Um, you know, the way a tailor would say, like, well, here, you know, here are the choices we have for your suit, sir. Like, okay, <laughs> right. what about this religion? What about and and just the idea of, um, yeah, he just wants them to believe in something. Yes, because that's why I always ask, like, what do you believe in? Yes. I don't know. And he's like, well, let me give you some options right, <laughs> right now. And yeah. I love that answer. I get that answer all the time. Yes. <laughs> no. yes. all, it's like holding up in a cloak of all these stolen watches. Like, let me show you the options that I have right here. Yeah. It's yeah. so cool. So it reminded me of our conversation about Life of Pi. And how Pi believed in um, in the three religions. And there's a quote. I didn't write down uh, almost anything about this book because I just listened to it in a fury over three days. Uh, but I did write down one quote by Sezid, which um, is amazing to me, where uh, they say, um, do you believe – is there a religion that you believe in? And he says, I believe in all of them. And they say, well, don't any of them contradict each other? And he says, yeah, they all contradict each other all the time. <laughs> right. And they said, how can you believe in all of them then? And then he says, he says this, quote, I respect the truths behind them. And I just – I feel like that's the kind of thing you just sit in your crock pot and like <laughs> let it simmer for a long time of like respecting the truths behind what's going on and – 
man, I, I just think there's a lot of wisdom <laughs> in in looking out into the world and seeing uh, contradiction and uh, I mean, even sometimes contradiction with your own worldview and saying, I respect the truth behind the, the sentiment, like the truth behind the, the thought. Uh, and I, th- I think we could do with more of that. Yeah. <laughs> also, <laughs> as, awesome. um, as a librarian, I like, I like Sazed's, you know, the, his form of resistance is storing knowledge and preferring, <laughs> preserving knowledge because he, you know, he talks, he, he kind of talks somewhat, um, um, disparagingly about himself that he's not really a fighter. I mean, he does have these, some, you know, magical abilities, but he's really not a fighter. He's not, he doesn't think of himself as brave, but he's just, he's takes so many risks and is trying because being a keeper is very, very dangerous. Um, the, you know, the Lord ruler is trying to stamp out all the keepers and all the terracemen. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, you don't have to, not everyone has to be Kelsier. Not everyone has to be Vin. You kind of just have to be yourself and, and, you know, do what, do the brave thing that is, that falls to you in your life. And the other thing about Sazed is this tragic irony that he has all of this information about all of the religions except for his own, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the one religion that w- the Lord Ruler stamped out so completely that none of the keepers have any, uh, any knowledge of it or any memory of it is their own religion. And so he's on this quest to try to find anything he can about his own people. And in the process, he learns about everyone else mm-hmm. uh, but is always kept from knowledge – uh, of of his own his own race and there's something just so sad in that uh that endears him to me even more i just he's such a, a powerful character but i mean i think that also goes back to the idea of good writing the characters can be defined by what their motivation is and that's like the perfect <laughs> motivation for a really interesting character that you'd want to sit down and have a conversation with um this yeah. you know this wealth of knowledge of everything except for his own people's you know, re- religion and history. Uh, and, and it keeps him going. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's a kind of quest that won't, won't stop anytime soon. So cool. I, I, I love that guy. <laughs> anytime he's, anytime he's on the page, I'm all in. <laughs> or in your earbuds. Or in your, that's right. <laughs> Did you slide down to 2x instead of 2.5? <laughs> no, no, I just, uh, just kept uh, plugging along at 2.5. <laughs> Racing along at 2.5. Um, the voice uh, actor that did the narration on Audible is outstanding and um, has different – because it, it can be a very complicated book because there are so many characters uh, and lots of dialogue between them. And he does a great job of um, giving each character a different uh, tone of voice and accent that um, makes the makes it really easy to follow uh, – uh, through audio. Uh, before, I, I know we probably only have a little bit of time, and I want us to come back to Vin a little bit more, but one other side character that I really enjoyed, um, and again, I'm now struggling. Ellen? To, no. No. No, uh, okay. no the, the brute, but that's a philosopher. Ham. Ham. Oh, ham. <laughs> I love that guy, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, putting those kind of contradictions together. So he has uh, the alamancy to strength. And mm-hmm. they said, like, most people who who have that one ability, they're just kind of thugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, like, asked these deep questions about what we're doing. Uh, and I think for a writer, that's an interesting thing to have that character because you can raise some of the thematic questions that maybe are supposed to be the um, subtext of a novel, and you make them text. But 
because everyone else is annoyed at this character raising these questions, <laughs> like it doesn't feel like he's force feeding, yes. uh, you know, the moral of the story. Um, so like whenever he asks, like, he's like, are we doing the right thing? And the, everyone's like, what do you mean? Like, are we doing the right thing? <laughs> he's, he was like, well, if the Lord ruler is God, is it the right thing to overthrow God? Right. <laughs> like, well, God's evil, but, but God is God. Oh, right. <laughs> Isn't that my definition? <laughs> the wrong thing. Yeah. No, I... but... Go ahead. Um, the yeah, the, I didn't get a chance to really get into the other crew members, but they're they're really fun, and they have um, they have uh, j- j- interesting personalities that sometimes work with their abilities and sometimes work against their abilities. Um, I'll give a small spoiler for one of the later books. So so Breeze is the soother, and he's the one who like is very good at manipulating people because he can like make you think that you want to do what he wants you to do. And, um, and so he's always kind of trying to calm people down and make them sort of docile. And in one of the later books, um, there's a girl who really likes him, who has a crush on him, who is a rioter, which is someone who like inflames emotions. And he like, she's a lot younger than him. He's not at all sure about this. So he keeps trying to like soothe her and calm her down and make her go away. And she keeps trying to riot him and like make him like her. And so they're, they're a very fun pair that like are, are sort of like perfectly matched. So uh there are i just thinking back on this book there are so many great moments for vin i mean for vin especially but um like well uh, like even that character breeze that you were just mentioning Mm -hmm. who you're supposed to kind of like distrust and dislike but there's the scene where you see him like using his skills and it's almost like a conductor working an orchestra Mm -hmm. as he's working an entire crowd Mm -hmm. and he's 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 explaining to Vin, like, you, you have to, you know, quiet this, but allow that emotion to rise yeah. in just the right amount. Uh, and it's, like, I really, like, I, it really was to me, like, I can, like the description of it was watching a master conductor work, you know, this yeah. entire room. One of the, one of the really things, fun things about how um, concrete Brandon Sanderson's magic systems are, are that he does a lot of exploring, taking things to their, to their kind of logical conclusion. So like if you're burning tin, it enhances all your senses, which is great. Except that like, then everything's too loud. The light is too bright and you can like feel the wood grain of the floor in your Mm -hmm. feet. And so, and so he has a lot of, um, his magic is never, it always has costs. It always has trade-offs. It could be a hindrance. So like Mm -hmm. the, the tin one, like if, if you're burning tin and then suddenly a light flares up, you're blind. Right. <laughs> like like right. you really just yeah. blown out all your, your sight. Um, or if you're, or if you're burning pewter because you're wounded and you're trying to like keep yourself alive and then you run out, you'll just die immediately because your body is like, not, cannot even handle, you know, yeah. the, the, what's going on with it. So it kind of, in that, it makes me think of um, like Isaac Asimov did his three laws of robotics mm-hmm. and yeah. everyone's like, you know, these aren't perfect laws. There's flaws. He's like, yes, every story I write is about how these can <laughs> yes. seem perfect, but, but what are the little wiggle room uh, where, where things might go wrong when you establish these three hard laws? There, there's an XKCD cartoon that examines if the if Isaac Asimov's three laws were applied in a different order and they're keeping like robot apocalypse like ends, which is and these weird sort of like, so look that up if you, if you love Asimov's three laws. I'm sure we will get to Asimov's three laws at some point yes. in this podcast. <laughs> I can't believe we haven't uh, up until now. I, I mean, I'm surely we've at least referenced, I don't know. We've, well, we've talked about yeah. Asimov. Yeah. yeah. But we haven't, we have not done an Asimov story yet. <laughs> Let's just, I'll just let you know, uh, literally our schedule is like penciled in through the end of this year already. <laughs> so before we leave, can I just ask you guys, just because I really love this story and there are so many great moments. Um, I'm interested in like, what's your favorite Vin moment from this book, but where, where you're reading and you just go, yes, this is <laughs> awesome. Um, 
I think, is it at the start of part two when she's dueling with Kelsier? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, like, you see she's got the magical skills, but also she's doing it in clever ways that are catching Kelsier a little bit off guard. But then I also love the conversation at the end where he's like, what she's doing shouldn't really be possible. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's not saying this to her. Yes. Uh, But he's, he's like, he's like your own weight matters a lot with when you're, when you're doing the pushing magic. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I was pushing against her and I must weigh twice as much as she does. He's like, and we've really flattened this between the two of us and that should not have been possible. (laughs) And so that goes down to just like her grit and will. Yes. Um, yeah. and not the physics of the magic that are on display. Such a great visual, the flattened coin between yes. them. Yeah. So cool. Um, I should say there are also, in the later books, there are also some mysteries about Vin and why she's so powerful. They get resolved. This is foreshadowed bit. in the first yes. one to yes. be dealt Because they're, you know, the way, the way I described it, it, it looks like it's very tidily wrapped up, but there are a few more plot threads that were kind of mm-hmm. hanging out. Um, oh, I, I think I'm, I'm, kind of torn between a couple of moments one of them would be just the just the when she's very first meeting kelsier and she's trying to figure him out and she just keeps being wrong about him over and over again because she's so sure that he's trying to scam her or have control over her something and so she's like he's gonna do this wrong he's gonna do that wrong now he's gonna do this wrong and so that's um that's really fun and then i also really like her first meeting with ellen um, I we, do too. We didn't get a chance to talk about him much, but I really like Ellen. He's really fun. And like, when he's reading, right? Yeah. And, and he's, you know, she's, and, and they, you know, it's interesting because neither of them really has an agenda when they're talking to each other, but somehow they're able to draw out just in their very first brief meeting, they're able to draw out like the most genuine parts of each other. Yeah. And it's this very interesting moment that, you know, cause she goes back down after the, after from the balcony after the ball. And she was like, wait, wait, I wasn't, pretending to be a noble woman up there but i also wasn't being like a scared little thief i think i was just being me and i don't even know yeah. who that is because she so. has a mask as a thief mm-hmm. but like i said she was always hiding in the corner of the room and putting up these guards and trying to make herself seem not there yeah and she has certainly a mask when she's being the noble woman yeah and that was the most natural form of vin i love it when she realizes that um that ellen is gonna be assassinated yeah. And then she just goes and like takes care of business. Yes. <laughs> that is so, uh, that is just the best for it's me. One of those, uh, like where you're getting hints at like the skills of these characters and then you get the release of Sing It on Display. And my favorite example of that is Joss Whedon's film Serenity where River mm-hmm. Song, like for so long you're yes. thinking she's an amazing fighter. Right. And then you actually get one of the best fight scenes on film. Right. When she finally goes and does her thing. And I, I, this was another one of those for me. And uh, she's not, it, it, I think the difference between this and, and that is that here she still is not 100% confident in her abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's her, her cleverness and her strength and her just sheer determination that allow her to win that battle against what's her name, Lady Shan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the she doesn't know is a mis- is misborn, but she is. And ah, man, it's just that's so great when she's like, "Don't mess with Ellen. I'm gonna go t- <laughs> like take care of this, even though it's totally reckless." And she knows she'll be in big trouble with uh, Kel for doing it. She just it's it's uh, it's awesome. And like kicking off her shoes and running, you know, like barefoot. And that's just, yeah, the there's speaking of, you know, secret identities. Sometimes she has to go do like Mistborny stuff after, like right after the ball. And so she's in this like, you know, giant party dress. She's like, I can't wear this and like go sit on the roof, you know? And so she has to like, and so she has to like 
stash her dress somewhere and just like go around in her underwear and then um and then like find her dress again so it doesn't leave her away and then like make it back to the hideout so um it, it's not it's not quite superman in the phone booth but it's it's still pretty fun it's yeah it's kind of like that though yeah uh, i mentioned that i'd read brendan sanderson's uh more superhero uh themed trilogy it's clear like he knows these genres and he knows the tropes of all the genres that he's playing with and he's he sometimes like borrows and combines in interesting ways so like that's great than anyone um i'm sure he, it's a deliberate choice to to engage in that uh but it's something that when a skilled writer is is playing with it, it it's just fun. <laughs> like there's just an element of just pure fun uh, that can be in these, even as we like talk about these really interesting themes and these character evolutions, some of this writing is just a joy to, to be reading um, the way that this stuff is being presented. Yeah. It's really um, like the pacing of this book is never off. <laughs> I, I never, well, maybe that's a benefit of listening uh, to, <laughs> to an app speed, but <laughs> <laughs> just moves at such a clip. <laughs> no, but really, um, there are, there just are no down moments. It, it, the The story moves so well. Um, the writing is so clear, and and the pacing is so crisp. It's just it's a joy to read. Um, or listen to just uh, probably final final thought. Uh, I love, and this may seem odd because I said earlier I struggle sometimes with fantasy names. <laughs> Um, but at the same time, I love the option that exists more in the fantasy genres than others to sometimes just have a, uh, a flourish in your writing. Um, so the, um, the Lord ruler being called, is it slice of infinity? Yes. Shard, or or shard, shard, of shard, infinity. shard of infinity. Like that's such a great turn of phrase and mm-hmm. it's so packed with meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get it in, in fantasy. And, and I think that's, um, one of the, the joys of, of well-written fantasies is these moments where like these phrases that you would not encounter if you're reading a spy novel or, you know, a romantic drama or anything else. There's can be um, just an elasticity to language that Mm -hmm. maybe exists uh, in fantasy that um, when you stumble upon those, those moments of like this turn of phrase, it's like, Oh, that's, that's just good. It's like, uh, like opulence or something. It's just like a joy, joy in the, in the turn of a phrase. Really great. We didn't say anything about Marsh, and he's another character who, at the end, I just my heart just breaks for him. Yeah, so so Marsh didn't make it into my summary, but he is Kelsier's brother who um, had tried to get a resistance going forever, right? <laughs> and then Kelsier showed up and did a better job, and then got himself killed. And so he's like, "Why did you show me up and then die?" And he makes some um, he makes some really great, really really great sacrifices through the course of the book. Um, there's also a really funny scene with Marsh and Vin where Vin is kind of trying to find out more about his background. And so she like soothes him very slightly to just get him, make him more talkative. And Marsh is like, you know, cause Marsh is very taciturn. And he's like, well, it all happened when we were boys. And then we're doing, cause like, wait a minute, are you soothing me? <laughs> so he kind of starts a monologue and then she's like, hey. <laughs> so yeah, Marsh is pretty great. But I mean, in the end he becomes an inquisitor. He gets those yeah. spikes driven through his eyes. Like, yeah. I mean, talk about sacrifice. Yeah. For the cause. It's, uh, that it's is, astounding. That is just one of the many threads that will await you if you actually read the book and don't <laughs> listen to my summary. <laughs> All right. We got anything else? Final thoughts? Uh, listeners, I recommend this book. And just know you may be locking yourself in for a trilogy and then maybe just uh, diving into the uh, Brandon Sanderson oeuvre for a little while. <laughs> there, are, there are worse people to dive into. Yeah. 
Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review there. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog, which uh, we switched up our format a bit at episode 13. So our first dozen episodes are a bit um, meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you're interested in this uh, episode, you might go back and listen to number 95 uh, about Nami in One Piece and number 107 about The Lord of the Rings, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And Kirsta is at BYU librarian, right? BYU underscore librarian. Correct. Is that right? Yes. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have great conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to stop by and say hello anytime. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or going to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Uh, and just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more, but we get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist, where you can listen to uh, Mistborn in just three days. <laughs> if you do it at two and a half speed. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bye-bye. Okay, I was going to go grab a power I love, I love Joe that you that – is, is he listening? No, he's gone. I love that Joe always has to tell Andrew when to cut something out. <laughs> Like he doesn't know. Right. Well, it's polite. He always prefaces it. Okay, Andrew, you're going to have to cut this out. We just need a super cut of Joe saying, Andrew, you're going to have to cut this out. Oh, man. That would be too much work.